Chapter 13 of Autobiography of an Actress by Anna Cora Mollett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. We made the tour of the United States and met with an uninterrupted series of successes. Every night not consumed in traveling was engaged at various theaters for a year in advance. In New York, we fulfilled a long engagement at Niblo's, but did not appear again at the Park Theater until spring. In that first year, I acted 200 nights. When I made my debut, I was only prepared in one part, Yet, before the close of that year, I had enacted all the most popular characters in juvenile comedy and tragedy. From this fact, some estimate may be formed of the amount of study requisite. Often, after a protracted rehearsal in the morning and an arduous performance at night, I returned home from the theater wearied out in body and mind, yet I dared not rest. The character to be represented on the succeeding night still required several hours of reflection and application. Sometimes I kept myself awake by bathing my heavy eyes and throbbing temples with iced water as I committed the words to memory. Sometimes I could only battle with the angel who knits up the ravel's sleeve of care by rapidly pacing the room while I studied. Now and then I was fairly conquered and fell asleep over my books. Strange to say, my health, instead of failing entirely, as was predicted, visibly improved. The deleterious effects of late hours were counteracted by constant exercise, an animating, exhilarating pursuit, and the all-potent nepenthe of inner peace, I gained new vigor and elasticity. With the additional burden came the added strength whereby it could be borne. As can be readily imagined, I was often weary to exhaustion, even during the performance. On one occasion, my fatigue very nearly placed me in a predicament as awkward to me as it would have been amusing to the audience. We were fulfilling a long engagement at Niblo's. I was playing Lady Teasel in The School for Scandal. When Lady Teasel, at the announcement of Sir Peter, is concealed behind the screen in Joseph Surface Library, she is compelled to remain a quarter of an hour, or perhaps twenty minutes, in this confinement. I was dreadfully fatigued, and glad of the opportunity to rest. There is no chair. At first I knelt for relief. Becoming tired of that position, I quietly laid myself down and, regardless of Lady Teasel's ostrich plumes, made a pillow of my arms for my head. I listened to Placide's most humorous personation of Sir Peter for a while, but gradually his voice grew more and more indistinct, melting into a soothing murmur, and then was heard no more. I fell into a profound sleep. When Charles Surface is announced, Sir Peter is hurried by Joseph into a closet. 
Lady Teasel, according to Sheridan, peeps from behind the screen and intimates to Joseph the propriety of locking Sir Peter in and proposes her own escape. At the sound of Charles Surface's step, she steals behind the screen again. The cue was given, but no Lady Teasel made her appearance. She was slumbering in happy unconsciousness that theaters were ever instituted. Mr. Jones, the prompter, supposing that I have forgotten my part, ran to one of the wings from which he could obtain a view behind the screen. To his mingled diversion and consternation, he beheld Lady Teasel placidly sleeping upon the floor. Of course he could not reach her. I have often heard him relate the frantic manner in which he shouted from an imploring stage whisper, Mrs. Wallet, wake up! For goodness sake, wake up! Charles Surface is just going to pull the screen down. Wake up! You'll be caught by the audience asleep. Wake up! Goodness gracious, do wake up! I have some confused recollection of hearing the words, Wake up! Wake up! as I opened my heavy eyes. They fell upon Mr. Jones, making the most violent gesticulations, waving about his prompt book, and almost dancing in excitement of his alarm. The hand of Charles Surface was already on the screen. I sprang to my feet, hardly remembering where I was, and had barely time to smooth down my train when the screen fell. A moment sooner, and how would the slumbering Lady Teasel, suddenly awakened, have contrived to impress the audience with the sense of her deep contrition for her impudence? How persuaded her husband that she had discovered her injustice to him during her pleasant nap? The second character which I enacted was Juliana, in Tobin's comedy of The Honeymoon. I plead guilty to the bad taste of delineated with especial delight the piquant shrewishness of the painter's daughter. My third character was Bride of Lammermoor. And then, with timid reverence, I ventured to bow the knee at the shrine of the mighty master. My whole being merged itself into the impassioned existence of Shakespeare's Juliet. During the drudgery of rehearsal, the actor drops disenchanted from the realms of Cloudland, where he dwelt with the ideal creations of the poet. The incongruous elements that compose the frigid atmosphere that pervades a theater blind his mental vision. He struggles in vain to catch the golden rays that flooded his spirits in serene seclusion, the pyrismatic hues of imagination fade in utter darkness before the conventionalities of his profession. All the delicacies of his inspired conception suddenly vanish, and he stands with the bare, cold outline of what he designed before him, powerless to clothe it with beauty. Thus I felt when I first attempted to rehearse Juliet. Disappointed and dispirited, I turned wearily from the task. But when night comes, and the actor lays aside his personality with his everyday garments, the Promethean fire is rekindled. He ascends from the height from which he fell in the morning, 
external circumstances lie beneath his feet, his gaze is upward, not downward, he not embodies merely, but in souls, the emanation of the poet's mind. Such were my experiences when I first had the hardihood to enact Juliet. No character ever excited me more intensely. Juliet's dagger, too impetuously used, more than once drew blood, but I found the sensation of stabbing oneself anything but poetic. The dagger's point was consequently dulled into harmlessness. Once I forgot this necessary appendage of the heroine in the last act. Romeo, who was lying dead upon the ground, was better provided. As I stooped to loosen the steel from his girdle, the poisoned lover, who was aware of my stabbing episodes, came suddenly to life and whispered in a sepulchral tone, Look out, it's very sharp, you'll stab yourself. I well remember my sensations the first time I was ever laid in Juliet's tomb. The friar tells her that, according to the custom of her country, she shall be born in her best robes uncovered on the bier. Adhering to the text, I have since worn bridal attire in place of the shroud-like dress usually adopted by stage Juliet's. But that night, a loose white muslin robe, drawn in folds around the throat and fastened with a cord at the waist, was the garment accidentally chosen for me. It was too palpably suited to the bier. The walls of the tomb were hung with black. An antique lamp that shed a luridly green light upon my face was suspended from the center of the somber, though temporary, enclosure. As I lay waiting for Romeo to kill Paris and break open the doors of the sepulchre, I heard the whispered conversation of some scene-shifter who stood without. They were each holding a cord attached to the doors of the tomb. The cords, according to stage direction, were to be loosened at the third blow of Romeo's wrenching iron. The worthy scene-shifters passed sentence of death upon me with admirable sang-froid, and decided that I would soon be lying for good and in earnest where I was then reposing as Juliet's representative in the tomb. To use the expressive language of one of the men, I was booked for the other world and no mistake. Their grave predictions were interrupted by Romeo's first blow upon the door. I was not particularly sorry when the funeral portals flew back and he bore me out of the mock sepulchre. Juliet was one of the characters in which I seemed fated to be placed in constant peril of life or limb. Several times the balcony, from which the loving lady of Verona makes her midnight confession to Romeo, was dangerously insecure. Once a portion of the railing over which I was leaning, forgetful of its representative nature, gave way. Had I not dropped suddenly to my knees, Juliet must have been precipitated into Romeo's arm before he expected her, and very probably would not have visited Friar Lawrence's cell that night. One evening, the property man, so the individual who has the charge of potions, amulets, 
caskets of jewels purses filled with inequality of coin and other theatrical treasures designated as stage properties is styled forgot the bottle containing juliet's sleep potion the omission was only discovered at the last moment the vial was needed some bottle must have been furnished to the friar or he cannot utter the solemn charge with which he confides the drug to the perplexed scion of the capulets the property man confused at discovering his own neglect and fearful of the fine to which it would subject him caught up the first small bottle at hand and gave it to the friar the vial was the prompter's and contained ink when juliet snatched the fatal potion from the friar's hand he whispered something in an undertone i caught the words so take care but was too absorbed in my part to comprehend the warning juliet returns home meets her parents retires to her own chamber dismisses her nurse and finally drinks the potion at the words romeo this do i drink to thee i placed the bottle to my lips and unsuspiciously swallowed the inky draught the dark stains upon my hands and lips might have been mistaken for the quick working of the poison for the audience remained ignorant of the mishap which i only half comprehended when the scene closed the prompter rushed up to me exclaiming good gracious you have been drinking from my bottle of ink i could not resist the temptation of quoting the remark of the dying wit who under similar circumstances said let me swallow a sheet of blotting paper the frightened prompter however did not understand the joke the misfortunes that attended the representation of romeo and juliet that night did not all fall upon me the part of paris was entrusted to a promising young novice he delivered the language with scholarly precision and might have passed for an actor until he came to the fighting scene with romeo romeo disarmed him with a facility which did great credit to the good nature of paris for whom life had of course lost its charms without juliet it then became the duty of paris who is mortally wounded to die the paris on this occasion took his death blow very kindly his dying preparations were made with praiseworthy deliberation first he looked over one shoulder and then over the other to find a soft place where he might fall it was evidently his intention to yield up his existence as comfortably as possible having satisfied himself in the selection of an advantageous spot he dropped down gently breaking his descent in a manner not altogether describable as he softly laid himself back he informed romeo of the calamity that had befallen him by ejaculating oh i am slain the audience hissed their rebellion at such an easy death if thou art merciful continued paris the audience hissed more loudly still as though calling upon romeo to show no mercy to a man who died so luxuriously open the tomb anne faltered paris 
but what disposition he preferred to be made of his mortal mould upon which he had bestowed such care no romeo could have heard for the redoubled hisses of the audience drowned all other sound and admonished paris to precipitate his departure to the other world the next day the young aspirant for dramatic distinction was summoned by the manager and asked what he meant by dying in such a manner on the night previous why i thought that i did the thing in a most gentlemanly style replied the discomfited thespian how came you to look behind you sir before you fell angrily inquired the manager surely you wouldn't have had me drop down without looking to see what i was going to strike again do you suppose a man when he is killed in reality looks behind him for a convenient spot before he falls sir but i wasn't killed in reality and i was afraid of dislocating my shoulder pleaded paris afraid of dislocating your shoulder if you are afraid of breaking your leg or your neck either when you are acting said the stern manager you're not fit for this profession your instinct of self-preservation is too large for an actor's economy you're dismissed sir there's no employment here for persons of your cautious temperament there are two distinct schools of acting and it is a disputed point which is the greater the actor of the one school totally loses his own individuality and abandons himself to the, all the observing emotions that belong to the character he interprets his tears are real his laughter real as real to himself as to the audience frequently they are more real to himself than to his listeners for the capacity of feeling and the faculty of expressing the sensation experienced are widely different the current upon which the actor is borne away may or may not be strong enough to bear the spectator upon its bosom byron says the poet claims our tears but by your leave before we shed them let us see him grieve but audiences say nothing of the kind they are oftener moved by what is simulated than what is felt the paste jewel glitters more brightly in their eyes than the diamond of pure water the actor of an opposite school if he be a thorough artist is more certain of producing startling effects he stands unmoved amidst the boisterous seas the whirlwinds of passions swelling about him he exercises perfect command over the emotions of the audience seems to hold their heart-strings in his hands to play upon their sympathies as on an instrument to electrify or subdue his hearers by an effort of volition but not a pulse in his own frame beats more rapidly than its wont his personations are cut of marble they are grand sublime but no heart throbs within the lifelike sculpture such was the school of the great talma this absolute power over others combined with perfect self-command is pronounced by a certain class of critics the perfection of dramatic art i have acted with distinguished tragedians who after some magnificent burst of pathos which seemed wrung from the innermost depths of the soul 
while the audience were deafening themselves and us with their frantic applause quietly turned to their brethren with a comical grimace and muttered few words of satirical humor that caused an irresistible burst of laughter heads were turned away and handkerchiefs stuffed into mouths but the star of the goodly company stood wrapped in unconsciousness very touching to the audience but particularly trying to the convulsed actors this singular faculty of keeping a stage existence totally distinct from the actor's own personality has many times been ludicrously exhibited to me i mention an illustrative occasion i was fulfilling an engagement in one of the english provincial towns the play was the stranger an old established favorite of that audience enacted the stranger and with considerable power it was the first night this gentleman had assumed an opposite character to me we had never exchanged words except a courteous good morning when we met at rehearsal and a good evening that night the play had made a deep impression upon the audience during the fifth act when mrs holler implores her injured husband to allow her to behold her children once more the sound of weeping throughout the house was distinctly audible upon the stage mrs holler had just spoken the words let me kiss the features of their father in his babes and i will kneel to you and part with them forever the stranger turned to raise me from my knees and as he did so whispered in the most lachrymose voice poor things they want in umbrellas in front then in precisely the same tone he uttered aloud the words of his part willingly adelaide i have dispatched a servant for them to the neighboring village he should be back by this time when he arrives they shall be conducted to the castle they may remain with you until daybreak then they must go with me the sobs of the audience increased in the same tone of deep anguish the stranger murmured as he again leaned over me it's raining so fast in the boxes that those poor fellows in the pit will catch their death of cold i'd better send umbrellas around not a muscle of his countenance changed his face retained its heartbroken expression and he sadly and deliberately wiped the supposed tears from his eyes i had no such control over my reasonable propensities i could only bury my face in my handkerchief but fortunately the laughter which i could not suppress had a hysterical sound not inappropriate to miss holler no amount of study or discipline could have enabled me to belong to the grand and passionless school i never succeeded in stirring the hearts of others unless i was deeply affected myself the putting off of self-consciousness was with me the first imperative element of success yet i agree with those who maintain that the highest school of art is that in which the actor prospero like raises or stills tempestuous waves by the magical force of his will produces and controls without sharing the emotions of his audience 
the anecdote i have just related is not the only ludicrous one associated in my mind with the play of the stranger an amusing incident occurs one night during the play's representation in savannah i was informed at rehearsal that two children who usually appeared as mrs holler's forsaken little ones were ill no other children could be obtained yet children were indispensable adjuncts in the last scene the play could not be changed at such hasty notice what could be done i was walking up and down behind scenes very much annoyed and wondering how the difficulty could be overcome when the person who temporarily officiated as my dressing-maid accosted me she was an exceedingly pretty mulatto girl she saw i was distressed without the absent children and with a great deal of hesitation offered to supply the deficiency i brightened at the prospective deliverance from our dilemma and telling her that i would be much obliged inquired to whom the children belong they're mine ma'am she answered timidly i have a couple of pretty little ones very much at your service yours i answered aghast at the information yours why mrs holler's children are supposed to be white i'm afraid yours won't very readily pass for mine and i could hardly help laughing at the supposition the young woman took my distressed merriment good-naturedly and replied oh my children are not very black seeing how their father is altogether white do you really think they would pass for white children why the little girl has blue eyes and they both have hair nearly as light as yours then you might powder them up a bit if you thought best i sent for her children they were really lovely little creatures with clear cream-colored complexions and hair that fell in showers of waving ringlets i decided at once that they would do and told her to bring them at night in their prettiest dresses to which i would add the needful additions the children do not make their appearance until the last act after retouching their toilettes and instructing them in what they had to do and feeding them with sugar-plums i told their mother to make them a bed with shawls in the corner of my dressing-room she did so and they slept quietly through four acts of the play we gently awakened them for the fifth act but their sleep was too thoroughly in the deep sweet slumber of happy childhood to be dispelled with great difficulty i made them comprehend where they were and what they must do even a fresh supply of sugar-plums failed to entirely arouse them the sleepy heads would drop upon their pretty round shoulders and they devoured the bonbons with closed eyes the curtain had risen and the children must appear upon the stage i led them to the wing and gave them in charge of francis francis walked on the stage holding a child in each hand the trio had hardly made their appearance when the little girl thoroughly awakened by the dazzling light gave one frightened look at the audience broke away from francis and shrieking loudly rushed up and down the stage trying to find some avenue through which she could escape the audience shouted with laughter and the galleries applauded the sport the poor little girl grew more and more bewildered francis pursued her dragging her brother after him the unexpected exercise added to his sister's continued cries and alarmed the little boy he screamed in concert and after some desperate struggles obtained his liberty 
Francis had now both children to chase about the stage. The boy he soon captured and caught up under his arm, continuing his flight after the girl. She was finally secured. The children, according to the stage direction, are to be taken through a little cottage door on the left of the stage. Francis, panting with his exertions, dragged them to the door, which he pushed open with his foot. The struggling children looked in terror at the cottage. They fancied it was the guardhouse, in which colored persons are liable to be confined if they are found in the streets after a certain hour without a pass. Clinging to Francis, they cried out together, Oh, don't put me in the guardhouse! Don't put me in the guardhouse! The accent peculiar to their race and the allusion to the guardhouse at once betrayed to the audience their parentage. The whole house broke forth in an uproar of merriment. Francis disappeared, but the audience could not be quieted. I was suffering not a little at the contemplated impossibility of producing the children at the end of the play, but nobody cared to listen to another line. Mrs. Holler's colored children had unceremoniously destroyed every vestige of illusion. I made my supplication to kiss the features of the father in his babes in the most suppressed tone possible, yet the request produced a fresh burst of laughter. We hurried the play to a close. The entrance of the children and the excitement produced by the parents by their presence we left the imagination of the spectators. The play ended without the reappearance of the juvenile unfortunates. A few evenings previous to this comical incident, another of a precisely opposite character took place in Charleston. The play was the same. I mention the anecdote because the morality of the stranger is by many persons considered dubious. I think this relation proves that in a mixed audience, there are sometimes beings upon whom the representation of Kobuzi's condemned play may have a beneficial influence. I was delivering the speech in which Mrs. Hollers confesses her crime. The audience were startled by a sudden shriek. The very sound proclaimed that it had been wrung involuntarily from some conscience-stricken heart. A confusion in the dress circle ensued. Then followed hysterical sobs and screams, and a lady was carried by her friends from the theater. The next morning, a gentleman called upon me and related the history of the lady whose agitation had disturbed the equanimity of the audience. She was taken home in a state of excitement bordering on frenzy and confessed that she had been on the eve of bringing herself the lifelong miseries endured by Mrs. Holler. I do not feel at liberty to dwell upon the particulars of the story, but the sequel proved that the representation of the stranger was instrumental in saving at least one frail being from becoming like the stars that fall to rise no more. Our engagement in Charleston during this my first season on the stage was of long duration and was followed by a succession of prosperous re-engagements. The theater was under the able management of Mr. Forbes. I became very much attached to this warm southern audience. When we were about to leave, 
I was solicited to deliver an address to the Charleston Volunteers in commemoration of their departure from Mexico. I think they were styled the Palmetto Guard. The occasion has left a deep impression on my memory. The stage represented the signing of the Declaration of Independence. The figures of the signers were startlingly lifelike and stood apart every one from the other. Amongst them was my mother's grandfather, Francis Lewis. As the curtain rose, the star-spangled banner was sung by the company. They retired at its close, and I came forward from the back of the scene, passed in and out amongst the fathers of our country, until I stood in the center. The address by J. A. Requier, Esquire, was a stirring production. At the lines, Remember the deeds that your sires have done. Remember the worship your sires have won. Remember the present must soon be a past. And strike like your sires, they struck to the last. When I pointed to the glorious host so admirably represented around me, the excited volunteers started simultaneously from their seats. It was long before their hurricane of responsive cheers would permit the address to proceed. In less than a week they departed, at the call of their country, on that expedition from which so few of the brave soldiers returned. In the words of the address, her voice bade them come with the steel and the targ to stand at the onset and strike at the charge. And perhaps some of them remembered the assurance and the prayers of women shall watch o'er ye now her myrtles shall blossom arrayed on your brow and her tears shall be brighter her blushes more sweet to emblazon success or to soften defeat our engagement in savannah was also under the management of mr forbes it was one upon which i look back with unmingled pleasure at its close a committee of gentlemen formed of the most distinguished residents gave us a magnificent entertainment in token of their esteem. I record with, I hope, a justifiable pride, the following extract from their note of invitation. We take this method of at once expressing our thanks for the exquisite enjoyment you have afforded us in your various personations and our high respect for you personally. A lady of your character and attainment elevates and adorns the stage and we have no doubt that your influence will be widely felt in purifying it from the abuses which sometimes mar its beauties, and that you will cause it to perform its proper task, to raise the genius and to mend the heart. Accept, madam, the assurance of our most distinguished regard, and believe that in no city will you have more ardent admirers and warmer friends than ours. Fashion was produced at Charleston and afterwards at Mobile and New Orleans, with its usual good fortune. To be forced to enact the walking lady character of Gertrude was a severe punishment. To escape its infliction, I always withheld the production of the comedy until the solicitations of the public and the managers left me no alternative. Could I have foreseen at the time the play was written that I should be induced to enter the profession, I would have been careful to create a character which I could embody with pleasure. Yet it was a very few months after fashion first appeared that I made my own debut. 
the public continued to entertain a strong desire that i should be supported upon the stage by one of my own countrymen a committee of gentlemen waited upon mr mollett in new orleans to request that some arrangement might be entered into with mr murdoch to play opposite characters with me our contract with mr c prevented the gratification of these gentlemen's wishes i proposed that we should select plays in which mr murdoch and mr c could both appear in parts of equal importance an attempt was made to carry out the suggestion but only one or two plays could be agreed upon and the idea was necessarily abandoned one amongst the many appearances in the profession which are misunderstood by the public is the relationship which exists between actor and actor the world in general cannot readily comprehend the total absence of all personal affinity and at times of all amicable feeling between them when an audience are in the habit of seeing two persons frequently represent the characters of romantic lovers enthusiastic husband and wife or devoted father and daughter they imagine some degree of attachment must spring up between the parties that the gentleman entertains at least warm admiration for the lady but in reality performers are constantly placed in the most affectionate stage relationships towards those whom they personally detest the bitterest enemies enact damian and pythias with a fervour that cheats spectators into the belief that some bond must draw them intimately together in the walks of private life it is related of an actress who lived unhappily with her husband that she delighted in personating the lover belvedere to his jaffer because it gave her an opportunity of inflicting certain feminine punishments upon him during the apparently tender embraces of the venetian pair i have faith in the story in the course of one long engagement i nightly enacted the betrothed the wife or the daughter of a gentleman with whom mr mawet was at variance and to whom i never spoke any needful communication at rehearsal was addressed to the prompter at night before the audience he was the most impassioned of nights and i was the tenderance of lady loves but one single step without the magic circle of the footlights and we were utter strangers nor was this coolness the subject of surprise or remark behind the scenes it was an everyday occurrence in all theatres chapter thirteen